You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 12, The Fall of Forts Duquesne, Niagara, and Carillon. For the last two weeks, I've been covering the events of the summer of 1758. Last week, we saw the British finally beginning to turn things around with a victory at Louisbourg and Frontenac. More importantly, the British finally convinced most of the Indians either to side with Britain or at least quit fighting for the French. At the same time all that was happening, General Forbes was slowly making his way across Pennsylvania toward Fort Duquesne. John Forbes was born in Scotland in 1707. His father, also a career officer in the British Army, died before he was born. Forbes started his career in medicine, but decided life as a doctor was not for him. At the relatively late age of 28, he purchased a commission as a cornet in the British Army. Cornet is the equivalent of a second lieutenant in our modern army. Forbes had seen combat in several wars, including crushing his fellow Scots at the Battle of Culloden. In the War of Austrian Succession, he served as aide-de-camp to Sir John Ligonier. Later, he served as quartermaster general for the Duke of Cumberland's army. It was almost certainly his relationship with Ligonier, now commander of all British armed forces, that accounted for his promotion to general and his independent command to take Fort Duquesne in 1758. Now, Colonel Washington and other locals tried to encourage Forbes to consider a faster route through Virginia, along the Monongahela River, as General Braddock had taken three years earlier. This route would have saved time as it would not require building a whole new road through forests and over mountains in territory teeming with hostile Indians. Forbes dismissed this advice as provincialism. He thought Virginia's concerns about his course were that his road would tie the Ohio Valley to Pennsylvania and threaten Virginia's claims to the land. He was not wrong on this point. The road he eventually cut helped secure Pennsylvania's claims to the land as far west as Pittsburgh. His road, later called the Forbes Road, became the main route west to the Ohio Valley. It followed roughly what eventually became part of the Lincoln Highway in the early 20th century. Forbes did not want to make the same mistakes as General Braddock, whose forces could not easily retreat with heavy equipment after the loss at the Battle of the Monongahela. Forbes's road allowed the British to maintain their supply lines back east to Philadelphia. If a retreat was necessary, they would not need to abandon their equipment. It was a slower but safer decision. The Virginians were right, however, that actually building the road would take the rest of the year. After Forbes hit the mountains in western Pennsylvania, forward movement slowed to a crawl. It probably did not help that Forbes was suffering from a terrible, debilitating disease that was making his work all the more miserable. To further secure the supply lines to his base in Carlisle, Forbes constructed a chain of forts along his new road at Littleton, Bedford, and Ligonier roughly 40 miles apart. 
Forbes establishes final fort Ligonier in August 1758, about 50 miles from Fort Duquesne. Indian raids on the British line of forts, and any supply trains traveling between them, forced the offensive to go on the defensive and hunker down. In September, Forbes deployed 800 men under the command of Major James Grant, a name you may want to remember, toward Fort Duquesne. Grant hoped to conduct a surprise raid or at least gain intelligence about the site. Instead, the French and their Indian allies received word of the advance and ambushed the British party. They killed, wounded, or captured nearly half the British force, including Major Grant, who was taken prisoner. The remainder fled back to Fort Ligonier with horrifying stories of the ambush. Back at Fort Ligonier, Forbes had about 6,000 men, including 2,000 regulars, to assault Fort Duquesne. After Grant's failed raid, though, he was reluctant to try anything further. With so many hostile Indians in the area, Forbes quite rightly feared that his forces would suffer fatal ambushes before they could even reach the fort. Summer turned into fall without any further advancement as General Forbes spent his time trying to make use of his Indian allies to improve his chances of a successful assault. And while the tribes in the Ohio Valley and Pennsylvania were still siding with the French, Forbes attempted to bring on allies from the Cherokee further south. More than a thousand Cherokee warriors joined Forbes in preparation for the final assault on Fort Duquesne. General Forbes, however, tried to treat the Cherokee as subordinates rather than allies. The Cherokee were not going to submit to military regulations or even take orders from the regulars. The Indians fought as auxiliaries or not at all. Forbes thought he could get the Cherokee to do otherwise. Instead, almost all the Indians ended up leaving Forbes, taking with them the guns and ammunition that he had provided to them. As the armed Cherokee returned south, they ended up having more problems with colonists that led to even more fighting. And we're going to take a look at that in an upcoming episode. But for now, we'll stick with Forbes. It appeared now that his advance had come to a complete halt and that his campaign for the year would be a failure. Then, by late October, word of the Treaty of Easton that I discussed last week reached western Pennsylvania. As word of the Easton Agreement spread to the western Indians, the local tribes accepted the change almost overnight. By early November, all local Indian raids had stopped. The more distant tribes had gone home for the end of the summer season. Ironically, the September attack on Major Grant had provided most of those warriors with the booty and honors they sought, so they packed up and went home. That was exactly the sort of behavior that frustrated European officers most about dealing with their Indian allies. The French commander at Duquesne now had his supplies cut off from the Great Lakes. Most of his Indian allies had abandoned him. He only had a token force at the fort, which could put up no serious defense. He convinced several loyal Indians to conduct one final raid on the British to take their cattle. Forbes sent out the 1st Virginia Regiment under Colonel Washington and the 2nd Virginia under Lieutenant Colonel George Mercer. Washington caught a few of the raiders, but ran into Mercer at dusk. Each regiment mistook the other for the enemy and opened fire, killing or wounding two officers and 38 men. Despite this accident, prisoners captured prior to the firefight provided valuable intelligence about the desperate circumstance at Fort Duquesne. With that information, Forbes began his final advance on the fort. They were about 12 miles from the fort when they heard the explosion on November 23rd. The French commander had removed all men and supplies from the fort. He then used his gunpowder 
to blow up the walls to render it useless to the enemy. The few hundred remaining French troops traveled upriver to Fort Machault to wait out the winter. Forbes now took control of the smoldering ruins. With militia's enlistments scheduled to end in less than a week, Forbes worked to throw up a new fort for the winter occupation. He named the new fort after William Pitt, the man in London who was in charge of the war. And so Fort Pitt and the surrounding Pittsburgh was born. Sadly, Forbes' continuing medical problems only got worse. His second-in-command, Colonel Henry Bouquet, had to manage a December 4th assembly with local chiefs that assured them that their lands would be protected by the Treaty of Easton. Forbes headed back to Philadelphia for medical care. He died there just a few weeks after his arrival, receiving a hero's funeral. His enduring legacy would be the Forbes Road, which his men had cut through Pennsylvania. It opened up the West for trade and settlement. Now, despite the victories at 1758 at Fort Lewisburg, Fort Frontenac, and Fort Duquesne, Britain still recalled General Abercrombie that winter. His failure at Fort Caroline had led to too much criticism. Despite his recall, he would receive promotion to lieutenant general in 1759 and would eventually rise to the rank of full general. He also became a member of parliament and would be a strong supporter of coercive measures against the colonies. General Amherst, the hero of Lewisburg, would take command of British forces in North America, and he would implement London's strategy for the 1759 fighting season. We see another retirement at the end of 1758. Colonel Washington headed home, finally having completed his objective of establishing British control over the Ohio Valley after nearly five years of effort. On January 6, 1759, just before his 27th birthday, Washington married the 27-and-a-half-year-old widow, Martha Custis, a young widow who might be described as, well, I think Monty Python said it best. She's beautiful, she's rich, she's got huge tracts of land. This made Washington instantly one of the largest and wealthiest landowners in Virginia. In the summer of 1759, he entered elected politics and became a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses. Washington would remain a militia officer, but he was putting his active military years of service behind him. His new focus would be as a plantation owner and politician, as well as a father to his two new stepchildren. The military and diplomatic reverses of 1758 had now put momentum in Britain's favor. The Iroquois left behind any pretense of neutrality, the fear that the Delaware and Shawnee might unite in an independent confederacy against the Iroquois prompted them to get fully on board with the British. Through the summer of 1759, the British were building a large fort and trading post at Fort Pitt, along with a settlement called Pittsburgh. More trade began arriving from Pennsylvania. The local Indians appreciated the supplies and the ability to trade, but were also concerned. If you English really are going to leave this area as promised, why exactly are you building this giant fort and big English settlement right next to it? For the moment, that question went unanswered. The Iroquois told the English there was a danger of the local tribes in the Ohio Valley moving back to the French, which would harm both Iroquois and British interests. Therefore, the Iroquois wanted to assist with the final push to get the French off the continent. The French still occupied Fort Carillon, where General Montcalm had defeated General Abercrombie the year before. The French also held Fort Niagara. The commanding General Amherst focused on these two targets as the keys to a winning season in 1759. 
The French also still held Fort Machault just north of Fort Pitt and south of Lake Erie, which threatened the Ohio Valley. But Amherst knew that taking Carillon and Niagara would cripple those smaller frontline forts without hope of supplies or reinforcements. There was also the fortress city of Quebec to contend with, but that was General Wolfe's problem, and one we'll discuss next week. As Amherst prepared his forces for the summer of 1759 fighting season from Albany, he received more than 20,000 militia from various colonies, still paid for with British gold from London. These complemented the more than 8,000 regulars at his disposal. General Johnson also came forward with about 1,000 Iroquois warriors from all six nations. Amherst deployed General John Pradu with about 3,000 regulars and 2,000 militia, along with Johnson and his 1,000 Iroquois, to take Fort Niagara. Now, this was no easy task. The fort was one of the best-built forts on the continent, with a highly capable military engineer, Captain Pierre Pouchot, commanding the defenses with about 3,000 French regulars and militia. Pouchot also had a strong relationship with the local Seneca, who served as lookouts for any attack and allies to assist with the fort's defense. Pouchot, however, made two fatal mistakes. First, by midsummer, he figured that the threat to any attack had passed. He reasoned correctly that the best time for an attack was in the spring, before the smaller winter garrison was reinforced. The attack did not come until July, after Pouchot had dispatched 2,500 of his 3,000 defenders to Fort Machault to take part in a French offensive to retake the Ohio Valley. Second, he assumed his Seneca allies would give him plenty of advance notice of any attack. His Seneca allies were also members of the Iroquois Confederacy, which he did not learn had decided to side with the British that year. Pouchot did still have a good working relationship with the local Seneca despite whatever strains existed between General Montcalm and the other tribes. But despite their loyalty, the rest of the Iroquois were now backing the British, and they did not pass along any warnings to the local Seneca that an attack was coming. Therefore, Pouchot was shocked when he learned that the British had landed a few miles from his fort on July 6, 1759. He knew immediately that he had to play for time as the British began to set up their artillery entrenchments for a traditional siege. He sent the local Seneca chief out under a flag of truce to try to get the 1,000 Iroquois marching along with the British to leave the fight. But the Iroquois under Johnson were adamant that this had to be done, and to sweeten the deal, Johnson promised his warriors the opportunity to plunder the fort once it was taken. Ultimately, after eight days of negotiation, the Seneca chief decided to remove his warriors from the French lines and head north. While Pouchot regretted losing them, he also did not want warriors on his lines of defense who might have issues with killing their Iroquois brothers on the other side. During the eight-day truce, the British were not just standing around. They had continued to entrench artillery, now just 250 yards from the fort's walls. Pouchot's only hope was that the defenders that he had sent to Machault received his message to return and would arrive in time. On July 23rd, a relief force came within sight of the fort. The British, though, were ready for them. The leaders of the Iroquois fighting with the British met with the 1,000 Indians in the French relief force and convinced them that a battle would just get them killed. Those forces wisely broke off and went home. That just left the French regulars and militia trying to break the British lines and enter the fort. Some sources say this was about 600 soldiers. Others say it was about 1,100. 
but in either event, the relief force faced somewhere between 2,200 and 2,900 British soldiers and militia, along with the 1,000 or so Iroquois auxiliaries fighting with them. The British and Iroquois cut down the French relief force, killing or capturing most, with the remainder fleeing into the woods. Two days later, on July 25th, Captain Pouchot surrendered the fort to Colonel Johnson. The British commanding general, Prideau, had unfortunately stepped in front of a mortar during the siege and lost his head, leaving Colonel Johnson in charge. The British took the French garrison prisoner and shipped them back to Albany. The Iroquois restrained themselves from any massacre and contented themselves with looting the fort itself. Johnson headed back to Fort Oswego, leaving an attachment to garrison Fort Niagara. Amherst would soon send General Thomas Gage, another name we still want to remember, to oversee control of the whole western area of the Great Lakes region from Fort Niagara. As Amherst predicted, the French had to abandon their three remaining forts below Lake Erie, as they could no longer be supplied or reinforced. So, French forces had retreated from Fort Duquesne and kept on retreating all the way back to Canada. Now, while Prideaux and Johnson were capturing Fort Niagara, Amherst simultaneously led another attack against Fort Caroline. Amherst led about 11,000 regulars and militia, slowly and methodically building up the defenses at Fort Edward and rebuilding a new Fort George near the site of Fort William Henry on the southern tip of Lake George. On July 22nd, Amherst arrived at Fort Caroline and began entrenching his siege cannon. The French commander, with his 400-man garrison, seeing that the British force of 11,000 was conducting a proper siege this time, rather than a foolhardy frontal assault, blew up the fort and retreated to Fort St. Frederick. When Amherst advanced on St. Frederick a few days later, the French once again blew up the fort and retreated. Amherst was reluctant to chase the French all the way up to Montreal without knowing what Wolfe was doing at Quebec. He feared he could easily stumble into a French relief force. Therefore, he focused his attention on rebuilding the two new forts. Fort Ticonderoga replaced Fort Caroline, and Fort Crown Point replaced Fort St. Frederick. By August, Amherst had already achieved all of his objectives for the year and saw no reason to endanger his gains through continued offensives without good intelligence. Better to end the year with several big wins for the British. At that point, he settled into winter quarters early and reported the year's victories back to London. Next week, General Wolfe takes Quebec. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.